had a conversation um, this week with a friend of mine who lives down in the south, in the Bible Belt area. And he was talking to me, and he, he's, uh, he has lived in Wyoming before. And he was talking to me about the people uh, that he inevitably rubs shoulders with at some point or another in his week as he goes through work. Some of them are co-workers, some are his boss, there are other people who he rubs shoulders with. And th- those folks that he rubs shoulders with, he's, he's just been kind of flabbergasted with their response to the world. He says, because they all talk about going to church, they all talk about a relationship with Christ. He says, but then the things that roll out of their mouth, the behaviors, the attitudes, the actions that they have going on in their own life, he says, it's as far away from God as you can, can possibly get. And he says, I just don't understand how somebody who claims to follow Christ can act that way. And it is a little bit mystifying. Part of the problem is, is that when you really know who God is, it change, He changes your life. Absolutely, from top to bottom. When you step into that relationship with Jesus, Jesus isn't just calling you out on things. He is coming to transform your life, to change you from who you are to who He wants you to be. And the old you looks nothing like the new you he's going to make you into. And so along that process, there are things in life that we really want to know for sure. We really want to know that God and heaven are real. We, we want to know that. We want to know that we're forgiven of our sins so that when we confess our sin, we really want to know that we're forgiven of our sins. We want to know that our lives will make a difference somewhere to someone. We don't just want to roam around on this planet with no purpose. We want to know that our prayers are heard. We want to know that there there are people who will love us and people that we can love. And we want to know what true love really is because that's an experience we all look forward. Now, Some of those things we can know absolutely for sure. There are other things that we're not going to know for sure, like when am I going to die? Am I going to outlive any of my children? Those things we don't know. But there are things we do know. And some of those things we know come straight from the Bible. We know that we know God and we know that heaven is for real. We know God's love. We know forgiveness. We know God hears our prayers And even if we're not married or that we don't even have children, we can still experience true love because Christ followers know what true love is and how to express it. That's what we know. Now, there are a lot of people who participate in other world religions. And the problem with all other religions if I can put it that way, is that the people who participate in those world religions, they don't know. They don't know if God loves them or, for that fact, if he even cares about them. It's a mystery to them. Their their minds are like, you know, I think that God exists. I hope that God exists. I don't know if he knows who I am. And so I'm trying to get that figured out. They don't know if their sins are ever forgiven. They don't know if the place that they've called heaven, their version of it, is a place where they're actually going to end up one day. They just don't know that. They live with a lot of uncertainty in their life. That's why they have to work harder and harder at the things they're doing. They're trying to get God's attention. They're trying to do enough good deeds so that one day, maybe, just maybe, they've earned a right to be in heaven with God. Maybe they'll, they'll have earned enough and done enough good things to outweigh the bad things that they've done, and that way they'll have this, this new way of getting into the presence of God. And so they live with total uncertainty in their life. And and at the best for them, it's kind of like, let's kind of 
cross our fingers and hope for the best because I'm not really going to know anything until I die. That sucks. You know what's even more kind of bothersome to me is the conversations I've had with people who have grown up in the church. They would claim to be Christ followers. And they're a little bit unsure themselves. They're like, I'm not, I'm not really sure if I've really got it taken care of. And, and so they have this fear that grows within them that, that they're not secure in their relationship with God. They've got this nagging thought that maybe there's something they should be doing in order to present themselves better to God. And there's no assurance of their relationship or in their relationship of what Jesus has done for them. And, and, and that, that is one of the most difficult things for me to help people with is to absolutely help them know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, you have this assurance of life after death. Apparently, the people I rub shoulders with and the people I know and the people I've had those conversations with aren't the only ones that have ever had to deal with this issue in their lives. Because apparently... When the Apostle John wrote his letter to the churches, he was dealing with that kind of an issue. There was this, this unsettledness within the church that they weren't really quite sure if the relationship they have with Jesus was going to be enough. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this letter of John. We're in the fifth chapter of 1 John. And John does something totally unexpected right now. I mean, we're coming to the end of the letter that he wrote to the churches. And then he does this thing that is just kind of like, if you haven't read John's stuff before, you're kind of like, why would he put that there? Basically, what he's doing right now is he's going to reveal why he wrote the letter. He's almost done writing the letter. And all of a sudden he goes, oh, and by the way, here's why I wrote the letter. And everybody's like, what? Okay. So here's what he says, verse 13 of chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things. Right now he's, he's already written like four and a half chapters. And now John says, this is what I'm writing. And it's kind of funny, not in a ha-ha sense, but in a strange sense, that John now divulges the intent for writing this letter as he comes to the end of it. He makes it clear as to whom he is writing. He's writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That's Jesus. And, and, and he's writing that we might know that this is what we should be expecting as we walk with Christ. Now, if if you've read his gospel, you're kind of like, wait a minute, I think he did that in the gospel too, because this isn't out of character for him to all of a sudden go like, wait a minute, I forgot to tell him why I'm writing the letter. I'll just kind of put a little cliff note in here, P.S., this is why I wrote the letter. He did the same thing in his gospel when he was writing about Jesus, introducing Jesus to the world. He, He came alongside and he said, Oh, and by the way, let me tell you about Jesus. And he did that in John chapter 20. There's only 21 chapters in the, in the gospel of John. And he waits till the 20th chapter to tell you why he's writing it. And this is what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what we have is in the gospel, John clarifies why he's writing the the gospel. He wrote the gospel to help us come to know Christ. 
He's introducing who Jesus is in the gospel. And he says, he's the son of God. He's the one who has come to die on the cross for our sins. He is the only way in which we're going to get into a relationship with the father. He's the only way in which we'll ever enter into eternal life. This is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the long awaited one, the one and only eternal God, son of God, Jesus. He wants us to know him. That's what he does in the gospel. And what he does in his letter, as he's written his letter, it helps us to know that we have come to know him. The the gospel wants us to get to know him, and the letter tells us that we do know him. That's a good thing for us to have. We need to have that. Now, John, in his letter, has provided three tests that are self-administrated. In other words, you have to, I can't administer this test to you, for you. You have to do it yourself. You have to think about your life with God, what it looks like, and do I really want to know for certain that my life with Christ is real? And so, God doesn't want us, his children, to have a life that's filled with worry or doubt or lack of assurance about whether we are true disciples, whether we are really authentic Christ followers. And so here's the test. The first test is the test of love for the family of God. Do you love other Christ followers? Second test is the test of righteousness. Do you desire to live correctly and in a way that pleases God? Third test is the test of right believing. Have you believed that Jesus is the Son of God and that he paid your debt on the cross? Your sin debt has been paid for by him. Now listen, if you answered those questions affirmatively, you got all three of those answers right. Mark it down somewhere so you remember this so that you don't end up back in a place of doubting. You are the real deal, the authentic Christ follower. Somebody's going like, really? Whoopee. Oh, it's a lot more than that. There's a whole lot more to it than that. And I want you to know that, that there is something about being a real, genuine Christ follower. Now listen, we all have some things in common, okay? Like we all breathe air. We all eat food. Some of us eat a little more than others. I know. Don't get after me. Cinnamon rolls are great. We all drink water. We all have these things in common. No matter where you're at in the world, everybody around the world does those things (laughs) together. Did you know that as a Christ follower, there are things that no matter what your banner of flavor of worship or how what Bible you read from or how you pray or whatever it is that you do, there are things that are common to all Christ followers. And probably the most important, first and foremost, is that every Christ follower, true disciple of Jesus, has come to the place where they have experienced the full grace of God's love in their life. You can't be a disciple. You can't be a Christ follower without having experienced God's grace in your life. And and that's crucial for all of us who are Christ followers. Now, the reason why we need to, to remember that we've encountered the saving grace of God is because having assurance of salvation, that's what that's called, assurance of salvation is critical to your spiritual health and growth. Knowing that you know is critical to how you will grow in your faith in God. Here's the deal. Think of it this way. Faith are the roots of your spiritual life. And your roots go down deep into the soil. And they pull up nutrients from God that feed your life. And the flower is the assurance of faith. Get this. You know this. I'm just... I want to make sure we're all on the same page. You can't have the flower if you don't have the roots. 
But you can have the roots and still not have the flower. But it's not the other way around. And so some of us, we're putting our roots down, but we're still wondering because there's a little bud sitting up there on the branch like this that's ready to pop and, and to explode with life. And it shows that we have this assurance with God because it becomes crucial to our well-being and our spiritual health. Because when I know that I know that Jesus has saved me, all of a sudden it changes everything. We test the genuineness of our salvation by the means of faith, obedience, and love. And unless we believe in Jesus, we cannot be saved. If we, are, if we genuinely believe, then we have salvation. Faith is the threshold to the life in Christ. John says there's another evidence besides faith, and it's the evidence of obedience. If you go back to his gospel, in chapter 14, Jesus was saying this to his disciples. Now listen, there's, there's chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. You know, those 17 is when Jesus is spending the last... I mean, John did a magnificent job of really getting down and bringing the nitty-gritty to the the pages for us to understand. But those are the last hours of Jesus' life with his disciples. And so in John 14, he's talking to them and giving giving them his heart. And he says, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, our identification of our love for God is our obedience to what Jesus has called us to do. And it's not just obeying the things that are easy to obey. Like, okay, I'm pretty sure that probably 95% of us in here can say we've never murdered anyone. That's a pretty easy one for us to obey. There's some of you I don't know, I'm sorry, but I just don't know you. You might. If you have a shovel in your trunk, I'm suspicious. <laughs> there are the commandments that, that God has given us that we're not to have any foreign idols. We're not to worship any other God. Most of us are going, yeah, hey. No, when, when I came across became a Christ follower, I threw my Buddha into the lake, and it's down at the bottom of the lake. You know, I mean, hey, I've given up all those idols, really. Uh, Jesus has got something I'll say about that, and that's for another day, not today. But if, if we are going to give the evidence that we are a Christ follower, that evidence is an obedient life. So what, is that, what does that really look like? You know the person that's the biggest pain in your hind end, your derriere? That person? The person that causes you the most grief in your life? The person you just keep praying every day, please, Lord Jesus, take them away. Remove them from the planet. I've got the shovel ready. Let's go. It won't be murder if you kill them. It'll just be a sad death. Let's get rid of them, Lord. That person? Jesus said, don't get the shovel out. You need to love that person. You need to love that person the way I loved you because the way that person is to you, you are ten times worse to me. Love that person. That's not an easy command to obey. How many times have I heard people sitting in my office go like, you know what, so-and-so did such-and-such, and and I will never forgive them. As long as I live, I'm not going to forgive them. I can't forgive them. I, I mean, that's... I just can't forgive them. Well, Jesus said that you will be forgiven by your Father in heaven the same way you forgive other people. Ouch! Don't like that one either. I'm going to cut that one out of the Bible. Throw it away, burn it. Jesus said that the identifying marker of being a true disciple, a Christ follower, he said this to his disciples in chapter 13 of his gospel. Or or John said it of Jesus. This is what Jesus said. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love one for another. Do people know that you follow Christ? Do people know that you're a Jesus lover? Do they identify you as a Christ follower by the love that you have for other Christ followers? And I'm not just talking about the people in this building. Every church in this community that preaches Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you love them? Because that's, that's what Jesus is going to identify us as his disciples. Now, John takes these three things, faith, obedience, and love, and in his book, he continually comes back to them throughout the whole letter. He's bringing us to a place that we all need to get to. And the reason he keeps bringing those back and rem- reminding us of them is because he wants us to have this absolute confidence assurance that we are saved, that Jesus is enough, that Jesus has done it all, that there's no more to be done. We have the confidence in him because when we have that confidence, then we will start to grow in our relationship with him. And one of the reasons why assurance of salvation is so important is that we cannot have a strong prayer life without it. Let me, let me help you understand what that looks like. I mean, if you're really not sure that Jesus is your Savior, then you're really not sure that His Father, our Father in heaven, hears your prayers. And that way, if He doesn't hear your prayers, because you're not sure about your relationship with Jesus, you're not sure about then how you're related to God, then the problem comes in is that when you go to pray, you pray with kind of a weak-mindedness, And you don't bring the big things of life to God because you don't trust Him because you don't know Him. Make sense? And and what God is saying is, no, I'm calling you my son. I'm calling you my daughter. I want this relationship. I want this intimacy with you. I want you to share every aspect of your life with me because if you share it with me, I am going to come alongside you like no one else can. But when we're not sure, we don't go there. Because we don't trust God to come through. And so our prayers are pretty much, Lord, thanks for this food. Help me to sleep well tonight. Praise hallelujah. Amen. And God's saying, no, come on. Man, let's go deeper. Let's just go deeper a little bit. You know, the early church, when they prayed, they prayed boldly and confidently because they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was who he said he was and that through Jesus we have a relationship with God the Father. And we have assurance of that relationship. Therefore, I can trust God to hear me and to deliver for me what he has for me. John chapter, First John chapter 4. Um, 5 verse 14, moving to the next verse, it says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Notice that John says in this verse that we have confidence toward him, that is God. Our confidence isn't in ourselves. Our confidence isn't in the words that we proclaim. Our confidence lies in nothing else except for the person to whom we're talking to, and that's God. All my confidence is in God. My confidence isn't in the stuff that I'm able to do. It isn't the stuff that I'm able to produce. It isn't in my ability to help you. My confidence relies on the one that can do it for me, and that's God. And this confidence is built primarily on our access. The Bible says that in prayer, we approach God with confidence. It also means that we have immediate contact with Him. Now, I I don't... Does anybody here besides Alan and Betty remember telephones that had a line on them plugged into the wall? (laughs) Yeah, put your hand up if you've had one of those phones before. Okay, so you... So back, but way back when Alan and Betty were kids, 
There was this phone, and you would pick it up, and you'd hit the dial, and you'd dial number, and all of a sudden the operator would come on and go, I'm sorry, but all the lines are busy at this time. Please try and call back later. You remember that? Yeah, people with gray hair and no hair going, yep, and young kids are going like, what is he talking about? It's a telephone. Okay, don't go in a museum. You can find one. But, but the problem is, is like at Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, those big holidays back in the day, you'd pick up the phone to call your relatives and, and wish them a happy holiday or whatever it is that you would do, and you'd get all of a sudden, you know, like, hey, call back in like about six days because the lines are jammed up and nobody's going to get you. See, that's the beautiful thing about prayer is that they're not like those old phone lines. You could have one billion people around the world, praying to God all at the same time, and none of those prayers are going to fall at his feet. He hears every single one of them, and he will answer them according to his will. That's what God does. He's bigger than AT&T and Mama Bell. And that's awesome. There are many things about prayer that we don't know or we really don't understand. We have an ink. I mean, I just, God is just so kind of like, he likes to mess with us, I think. Because when you start to pray and you start to get into this prayer life and all of a sudden things are starting to happen, God's going to go, oh. He goes, hey, Jesus, come here, watch this. This is going to blow their minds. This is going to be so much fun. Get ready. You're going to fall on the ground laughing, Jesus. And then he does something, and we're like, oh, wow, did you know? Wow, unbelievable. And God's going like, yeah, just wait. I got more. I got more. And, and, and so it, it's things we just don't understand yet or we don't know completely. And I don't know if we'll ever completely exhaust the, the subject of prayer. And, and in, as an activity in prayer, guess what? You never have to go back and do an upgrade and wait for it to reload and reboot and redo all the other stuff. The activity of prayer never needs to be updated. It never needs to be retooled. It is simply the God-ordained way that we get what we need. That's what prayer is. And we have this confidence in it. Matter of fact, in Hebrews 4, it says, "Let Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's God's promise to us that we can come with confidence to the throne of God because God's not on vacation. He's not in the bathroom. He's not off doing something else. He hasn't forgotten your name. He's always attentive to, his ear is always attentive to your prayer and he is listening when you call upon him. And when it comes to prayer, we should have the confidence that if we pray and ask for something in God's will, he hears us. Now, here's the big thing that a lot of people miss and forget about prayer. First of all, prayer is a conversation with God. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who get together and they do this with God. They're going like, all right, I've spent most of my morning making this list of things, God, that you're going to do for me. Okay, God, here I go. It's my list for you to do for me. And then it's like, blah, 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 blah done, amen, and you go, bless the list, Lord. And you get up and you walk out the door and God's going like, okay, see ya. It's a conversation. You know in a conversation, right now we're not having a conversation. I'm talking at you. I'm not talking with you, I am talking at you. Sorry to be rude about it. If you want a conversation with me, you can come in and see me. In 2020. I'm busy. We have this conversation with God. And it takes place where we sit down. And in order to have a full conversation, just, just think about it. You talk and you listen. Now just imagine your relationships that you have. The one with your spouse or the one that you have with your children or the one you have with your parents. Maybe it's with your best of friend. You walk into the room, 
and you bring your list with you, and you say, all right, so today you're going to go to the grocery store, and there's 15 items right here in the grocery store. You need to get on the computer, and you need to pay these bills. And then at the end of the day, would you make sure the dishes are cleaned up, dishwasher turned on, kids are put in bed? Hey, thanks for the conversation. Good talk. Talk to you later. That conversation isn't going to happen a whole lot. Not in, and keep the relationship intact. But that's the tendency that we have when we come to God in prayer. We have a tendency just to give him a grocery list of things we want him to do for us. And, and that's not what God calls prayer. The second thing, or the second idea about prayer, is that when we pray, we need to pray according to the will of God. A lot of times we come and we pray according to my will. My will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is what we say. But that's not what God called us to do. Matter of fact, if you think about Jesus as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of his life, and he's getting ready to go to the cross, and he's gone to the place where he's praying to his Father, and he's... he's, in such anguish that he's got blood and sweat drops dropping to the ground, and he's in such anguish, and he comes to the place, and he says, if there is any other way for this cup to pass by me, make it so. And then Jesus adds this, and it's a line we all need to add to our prayers, not my will, but your will be done. We we come up, and we are telling God as if we've got some kind of right to tell the God of the universe, the God of creation, what to do. He's like, really? I gave you life. I can take your life. That's true about God. I mean, I've said that to my kids, right? I brought you in this world. I'll take you out. (laughs) And they just kind of laugh because they know you're just dad and there ain't jack squat you can do. But you go ahead and say something to God, and God goes like, I brought you into this world, and I'm going to take you out. And believe me, he will take us out. One day or another, we're all going. So don't get too comfortable where you're at, because this isn't your home. This is just kind of a watering hole. So we need to pray according to God's will. And then the third thing is, the reality is that we need to ask in order to receive. Prayer comes in many ways, many forms. Prayer, we have prayers of thanksgiving. We have prayers of praise, of petition on behalf of others. We have supplications and requests. Uh, But prayer is also asking God for very specific things like salvation of your neighbors or your family members, like the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people in Lander, like the gift of repentance in your own life, like the, the, the work of the Spirit in my heart as I come into church to transform me and keep moving me down the path of faith. That's, that's what God is, is doing for us. But you will not receive if you don't ask. Now, don't get confused about prayer like some have. Prayer is not us trying to coerce or wrangle God to get Him to do what we want Him to do. Prayer is not trying to get what you want. But what prayer is, is having God give us what He wants us to have. I'm asking God to do in my life what he knows is best for my life. That's prayer. And true prayer is when we come to God and ask what he wants for us. And I've been learning a lot about prayer in the last couple of years. And one of the the ways that I approach prayer is I've gotten rid of the laundry grocery list. The grocery list are the things that I want. The laundry list are the things that God needs to clean up. And now, when I come into my prayer time, I take minutes, and I don't know how many they are because I'm not keeping a watch and I'm not keeping track of time, but I take minutes and I want to settle my mind because you've never been in my mind. It's a jumbled mess. 
I'm amazed. I mean, the squirrels up there, they're everywhere. And I got to get everybody to settle, calm down. Just stop it. Just stop it. I got to get this calm. And then I've got to get this settled. And then I need to spend some time in silence. Because God doesn't speak to us with a thunderous voice like thunder or a cannon. God talks to us in a whisper. He doesn't talk very loud. It's a small, still voice. And if you're not calm, and if you're not quiet, you will never hear what the Spirit of God has to say to you. And then when I get to that place where I'm quiet and I'm calm and I'm still before God, my simple prayer is, tell me what you want me to pray about. There have been times when I've sat there like for 10 minutes and there's nothing. You know how scary it is to be in my mind when there's nothing going on? It's like bouncing a bouncy ball in there. And then God starts to bring people. He starts to bring thoughts. He starts to bring situations. He starts to bring stuff to my mind. And I know at that time that is exactly what God is calling me to pray for. A famous guy that I've never heard of before. No, I have. But, I mean, he's famous to people in the theological world world, but maybe not to you. His name is C.H. Dodd. He's dead. But he said this, and it's really good. Prayer, rightly considered, is not a device of imploring the sources of God to fulfill our desires, but a means by which our desires may be redirected according to the mind of God and made into the channels for His will. Back to verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Jesus gives us great instructions on prayer, particularly in the whole asking realm. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened to him. The problem is, is that we have, you know, our tendency, our tendency is to be kind of the kind of people who are one and done kind of people. We make prayer almost like our bucket list. All right, I've done that. But when Jesus said to, to ask, seek, knock, he didn't say try it one time and see what happens. We are to keep asking and we are to keep seeking and we are to keep knocking and asking and seeking and knocking. And we keep coming to that until God answers the prayer. That's really important. Our tendency is to go, I've asked, I've been seeking, I've knocked. Okay, now I'm going to go. And what God's going like, no, 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 come back here. Ask some more. Seek some more. Knock some more. Is it, are we doing that because we need to get God's attention? We're afraid that God's not hearing us, that he's lost. He hasn't heard our voice yet, and so we have to make it louder. We have to make it bigger. No. God, that's not why we keep asking, seeking, and knocking. Isn't trying to get the attention of God. What we're trying to do is let God know the seriousness of the issues that we're bringing before him. We keep asking because this is really important to us. If, we, if your kid came up to you and said, Hey, mom, I'm thirsty. They're running through the room, mom or dad. They run through the room. Hey, mom, I'm thirsty. And out the back door they went. So if if somebody just asks one time on their way passing through, you don't really think they're serious about what they're asking for. And, and God, God is saying to us, no, 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 come back. I want to see how serious you are about 
this issue in your life. So he wants us to keep asking, seeking, and knocking. In, in John chapter 14, there's another part to this. Because it's not just asking, seeking, and knocking. It's how we ask, seek, and knock that's really important as well. John chapter 14 says, Whenever you ask, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, the Father, that the Father may glorify, be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You see, so it's not just asking, seeking, and knocking, but there is something about asking, seeking, knocking in the name of Jesus that is highly important. John, he, Jesus said it again in chapter 15. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then in John chapter 16, Jesus said, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. You see, the asking, the knocking, the seeking needs to be accompanied by the name of Jesus, coming in the name of Jesus. There's where the power lies. It's not in the words you have. It's not in the prayer that you've prayed. It only comes through Jesus. And here's the craziest thing. There is so much more that could be done in the name of Jesus, and there is so little that is accomplished because we don't come in the right posture. Remember, it's nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus. And as you read through the beginnings of the church found in Luke's letter to Theophilus called the Acts of the Apostle, you will find that there was one constant discipline in the church. That constant discipline is they prayed. In Acts chapter 2, they've already had the Holy Spirit come and fall upon them, empowering them to do what God said, Jesus said He was going to have them do. But it says in Acts chapter 2, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were devoted to prayers. The early church newly formed, they had a really exciting beginning, but it was birthed out of a prayer meeting. Notice that they devoted themselves to it. And in Colossians 4, it says, continue steadfastly in prayer, which being in it with being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This whole idea of prayer is paramount to the life and the health of the church. That's why assurance in Christ is so important. Because if you don't have assurance in Christ, why pray? And I think that most people who don't have assurance in Christ, they have weak and emaciated prayer lives that don't accomplish anything. When it says in both these two passages, one uses the word steadfast, continue steadfastly. The other one uses devoted. Both carry the same intention in, in the Greek language. And it's the strongest word in the Greek language for commitment. It means to adhere to, to lock onto, to remain steadfastly attentive, to be courageously devoted to prayer. And that's why the church did as much as they did because they were absolutely 100% devoted to prayer. I may be making an assumption, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to voice it out loud. My assumption is, is that most of you come to church because you want to see your life make a difference in the lives of people who live in Lander. The only way your life will ever make a difference in Lander, the only way this church is going to make a difference in Lander is by us coming together in prayer. And, and if you go back into the, book of, into the book of Acts and you look at all the miracles that were performed in the book of Acts, they were always 
Two things happened every time there was a miracle. There was prayer associated with it. And it says, the church multiplied in number, or many were added to the church that day, or they grew in number every day. And so you have, you have these miraculous things going on because it's accompanied by prayer. And the end result is that people are giving their lives to Christ and coming into relationship with Jesus and the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. That's what we're supposed to be about. Because Jesus instituted the church. He put the church together. And he knew that the church, we the church, are going to be the only hope for the nations. Other religious, um, other world religions have bring no hope to anybody, anywhere, on any level. They don't have hope. We talked about that at the beginning of this talk. The church is the only one that will bring hope to the world. We are the voice of Jesus for a hopeless world. And until they hear that voice, they remain in hopelessness. And the way they hear that voice is because we're praying and asking God, how do we reach into their lives? And when we do that, we're, we're praying the heart of God. And that's why God answers prayers focused around that, on His heart. God, God's not so much interested in answering the prayers of your wants and your greed. But He does promise He will answer all of our needs according to His will. Listen, this is, this is really important, and I'm going to move right along here real quickly. Learning the importance of praying in the will of God may be the most single important principle of prayer. I'm going to hit this up real quick. God has given us His written will. It's in your Bible. It's called the Bible. You want to know what God's will? It's not a mystery. Read the Bible. He will reveal His will to your heart and mind. There are things that are not written in the Bible that you need to seek God on and His will. Like, should I buy this house? You're not going to find any passages in Scripture that say, buy this house. So you go to the next source that reveals God's will, and that's the Holy Spirit. You start praying and asking God because you want to make a wise decision with the finances that He's given to you, and you want to do the right thing. And so you ask God, and God orchestrates a few things that you go, that's God speaking. I'm going to do that. That's because we've prayed in God's will. The Spirit helps us to pray as well. Um, I'm just going to jump right to the end. And, and you're, God's got great stuff for you. So just the, the big thing that I want to hit up as I end off here is how does God answer prayer? And it's in one of four ways. He will either answer with a direct yes or no, or he may delay the answer, or he will answer your prayer different, differently than you ask. Let me give you some scriptural evidence of that. Peter got thrown in jail, and so the church gathered together and they prayed that God would release Peter from prison. God answered with a miraculous deliverance. It was immediate, and the answer was yes, I will release him from prison. Paul prayed to enter Asia on his missionary journeys. But God said no and redirected him in another direction. Mary and Martha prayed for Jesus to come and heal their brother Lazarus, who was sick. And the Lord delayed coming to them for two days. Lazarus died, and Mary and Martha did not understand why the Lord had tarried. He answered their prayer by raising Lazarus from the dead, but it was after a delay. Was Lazarus healed? Yes, but he had to die first. <laughs> and then he was brought back to life. It was a delay. There was an answer, but it was a delay. 
And then we have Paul who prayed that his thorn in the flesh would be removed. But God did not answer his prayer for removal. Instead, he answered Paul's prayer by adding something to the thorn. His sufficient grace. God, remove the thorn. No, my grace is going to be sufficient for you in it. Okay. So God declined to answer Paul's prayer the way he prayed for it. And he gave him what he really needed. What it meant to live in the grace of God. We have confidence that we belong to God. We are his kids adopted into his family with all the rights and privileges of an heir, that is Jesus. We don't need to worry about our position if we're truly saved. And so in that confidence, we need to come boldly to God about his work in us towards others. I can't stress the importance to you this morning of the fact of your spiritual health and well-being, which then translates to the spiritual wealth and well-being of the church, is predicated upon who God is to you in your life. If he is absolutely who he said he is, if Jesus is who he said he is, if Jesus is your Savior, if God is your Father, if the Holy Spirit indwells in your life, you have assurance of him being there. Your life will be transformed and it will become different and other people's lives around you will be transformed and become different and people will enter into the kingdom of God. Without the assurance from God, you will be weak and emaciated in your relationship and your spiritual growth. So this morning, just simply, if you're not sure, today's the day to make it sure. Just step into it and just say, God, I'm not sure, but I need to have the assurance that I'm with you. If you are already assured of your salvation, then start asking God, now what? Now what do you want me to do? Because I'll do it. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Amen? Our Father, this morning, we thank you that you have given us absolute confidence and assurance that as we come to you, as we live in the grace that you have provided for us, even in our weakness, you will come and you will strengthen us. Even in our doubts and our fears, your Holy Spirit will remind us we can come with confidence and boldness before the throne and we can make our requests known to you because you care for us. You love us deeply as a father loves their children, his children. And this morning, as your children, we need you to instill in us the confidence of your saving work in our lives. Help us, God. Just help us to know for sure. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.